Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, chapters 41 and 42. We're getting close to the end. There'll be two more chapters after this. This one is chapter 41, The Interdict. As you recall, the boss and Sandy's child was sick, and that's where we start this story. However, my attention was suddenly snatched from such matters. Our child began to lose ground again, and we had to go to sitting up with her. Her case became so serious. We couldn't bear to allow anybody to help in this service, so we two stood watch and watch, day in and day out. Ah, Sandy, what a right heart she had! How simple and genuine and good she was! She was a flawless wife and mother, and yet I had married her for no other particular reasons except that by the customs of chivalry she was my property until some knight should win her from me in the field. She had hunted Britain over for me, had found me at the hanging bout outside of London, and had straightway resumed her old place at my side in the placidest way and as of right. I was a New Englander, and in my opinion this sort of partnership would compromise her sooner or later. She couldn't see how, but I cut argument short, and we had a wedding. Now I didn't know I was drawing a prize, yet that was what I did draw. Within the twelfth month I became her worshipper, and ours was the dearest and perfectest comradeship that ever was. People talk about beautiful friendships between two persons of the same sex. What is the best of that sort, as compared with the friendship of man and wife, where the best impulses and highest ideals of both are the same? There is no place for comparison between the two friendships. The one is earthly, the other divine. In my dreams, along at first, I still wandered thirteen centuries away, and my unsatisfied spirit went calling and harking all up and down the unreplying vacancies of a vanished world. With a grand magnanimity, she saddled that cry of mine upon our child, conceiving it to be the name of some lost darling of mine. It touched me to tears, and it also nearly knocked me off my feet, too, when she smiled up in my face for an earnest reward and played her quaint and pretty surprise upon me. The name of one who is dear to thee is here preserved, here made holy, and the music of it will abide away in our ears. Now thou'lt kiss me, as knowing the name I have given the child. But I didn't know all the same. I hadn't an idea in the world— "'but it would have been cruel to confess it "'and spoil her pretty game, "'so I never let on, but said, "'Yes, I know, sweetheart, "'how dear and good it is of you, too. "'But I want to hear those lips of yours, "'which are also mine. "'Utter it first. "'Then its music will be perfect. "'Please to the marrow,' she murmured. "'Hello, Central.' "'I didn't laugh. "'I'm always thankful for that.' but the strain ruptured every cartilage in me, and for weeks afterward I could hear my bones clack when I walked. She never found out her mistake. The first time she heard that form of salute used at the telephone, she was surprised, and not pleased. But I told her I'd given order for it, that henceforth and forever the telephone must always be invoked with that reverent formality, in perpetual honor and remembrance of my lost friend and her small namesake. This was not true, but it answered. Well, during two weeks and a half, we watched by the crib, and in our deep solicitude, we were unconscious of any world outside that sick room. Then our reward came. The center of the universe turned the corner and began to mend. Grateful? 
isn't even the term. There isn't any term for it. You know that yourself, if you watched your child through the valley of the shadow, and seen it come back to life, and sweep night out of the earth with one all-illuminating smile that you could cover with your hand. Why, we were back in this world in one instant. Then we looked the same startled thought into each other's eyes at the same moment, more than two weeks gone, and that ship not back yet. In another minute I appeared in the presence of my train. They had been steeped in troubled boatings all this time. Their faces showed it. I called an escort, and we galloped five miles to a hilltop overlooking the sea. Where was my great commerce that so lately had made these glistening expanses populous and beautiful with its white-winged flocks? Vanished, every one. Not a sail, from verge to verge. Not a smoke-bank. Just a dead and empty solitude, in place of all that brisk and breezy life. I went swiftly back, saying not a word to anybody. I told Sandy this ghastly news. We could imagine no explanation that would begin to explain. Had there been an invasion? An earthquake? A pestilence? Had the nation been swept out of existence? But guessing was profitless. I must go at once. I borrowed the King's Navy, a ship no bigger than a steam launch, and was soon ready. The parting? Ah, yes, that was hard. As I was devouring the child with last kisses, it brisked up and jabbered out his vocabulary. The first time in more than two weeks, and it made fools of us for joy. The darling mispronunciations of childhood. Dear me, there's no music that can touch it, and how one grieves when it wastes away and dissolves into correctness, knowing it will never visit its bereaved ear again. Well, how good it was to be able to carry that gracious memory away with me. I approached England the next morning, with the wide highway of salt water all to myself. There were ships in the harbor, at Dover, but they were naked as to sails, and there was no sign of life about them. It was Sunday, yet at Canterbury the streets were empty. Strangest of all, there was not even a priest in sight, and no stroke of a bell fell upon my ear. The mournfulness of death was everywhere. I couldn't understand it. At last, in the further edge of that town, I saw a small funeral procession. Just a family and a few friends following a coffin. No priest. A funeral without bell, book, or candle. There was a church there close at hand, but they passed it by weeping, and did not enter it. I glanced up at the belfry, and there hung the bell, shrouded in black, and its tongue tied back. Now I knew. Now I understood the stupendous calamity that had overtaken England. Invasion? Invasion is a triviality to it. It was the interdict. I asked no questions. I didn't need to ask any. The church had struck. The thing for me to do was get into a disguise and go warily. One of my servants gave me a suit of clothes, and when we were safe beyond the town, I put them on, and from that time I traveled alone. I could not risk the embarrassment of company. A miserable journey. A desolate silence everywhere. Even in London itself. Traffic had ceased. Men did not talk or laugh or go in groups or even in couples. They moved aimlessly about, each man by himself, with his head down and woe and terror at his heart. The tower showed recent war scars. Verily, 
much had been happening. Of course, I meant to take the train for Camelot. Train? Why, the station was as vacant as a cavern. I moved on. The journey to Camelot was a repetition of what I'd already seen. The Monday and the Tuesday differed in no way from the Sunday. I arrived far in the night. From being the best electric-lighted town in the kingdom, and the most like a recumbent son of anything you ever saw, it was become simply a blot. A blot upon darkness. That is to say, it was darker and solider than the rest of the darkness. And so you could see it a little better. It made me feel as if maybe it was symbolical. A sort of sign that the church was going to keep the upper hand now and snuff out all my beautiful civilization just like that. I found no life stirring in the somber streets. I groped my way with a heavy heart. The vast castle loomed black upon the hilltop, not a spark visible about it. The drawbridge was down. The great gate stood wide. I entered without challenge, my own heels making the only sound I heard. And it was sepulchral enough in those huge, vacant courts. We'll return with Chapter 42, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 42, War. I found Clarence alone in his quarters, drowned in melancholy, and in place of the electric light, he had reinstituted the ancient rag lamp, and sat there in a grisly twilight with all curtains drawn tight. He sprang up and rushed for me eagerly, saying, "'Oh, it's worth a billion mill-rays to look upon a live person again!' He knew me as easily as if I hadn't been disguised at all, which frightened me. One may easily believe that. "'Quick, now, tell me the meaning of this fearful disaster,' I said. "'How did it come about?' "'Well, if there hadn't been any Queen Guinevere, it wouldn't have come so early. "'But it would have come anyway. "'It would have come on your own account by and by. "'By luck, it happened to come on the Queen's. "'And Sir Lancelot's? "'Just so. "'Give me the details. "'I reckon you will grant that during some years "'there has been only one pair of eyes in these kingdoms "'that has not been looking steadily askance at the Queen and Sir Lancelot. "'Yes.' "'King Arthur's. "'And only one heart that was without suspicion. "'Yes, the king's, "'a heart that isn't capable of thinking evil of a friend. "'Well, the king might have gone on, "'still happy and unsuspecting, "'to the end of his days, "'but for one of your modern improvements, "'the stock board. "'When you left, three miles of the London, "'Canterbury, and Dover were ready for the rails, "'and also ready and ripe for manipulation "'in the stock market.' It was Wildcat, and everybody knew it. The stock was for sale at a giveaway. What does Sir Lancelot do, but... Yes, I know. He quietly picked up nearly all of it for a song. Then he bought about twice as much more, deliverable upon call, and he was about to call when I leapt. Yes, very well. He did call. The boys couldn't deliver. Oh, he had them, and he just settled his grip and squeezed them. They were laughing in their sleeves over their smartness in selling stock to him at fifteen and sixteen, and along there that wasn't worth ten. Well, when they had laughed long enough on that side of their mouths, they rested up that side by shifting the laugh to the other side. That was when they compromised with the Invincible at two eighty-three. Good land! He skinned them alive, and they deserved it. Anyway, the whole kingdom rejoiced. 
while among the flayed were Sir Agravaine and Sir Mordred, nephews to the king. End of the first act. Act second, scene first, an apartment in Carlisle Castle, where the court had gone for a few days hunting. Persons present, the whole tribe of the king's nephews, Mordred and Agravaine proposed to call the guileless Arthur's attention to Guinevere and Sir Lancelot. Sir Gawain, Sir Gareth, and Sir Gaheris will have nothing to do with it. A dispute ensues, with loud talk, and in the midst of it enters the king. Mordred and Agravaine spring their devastating tale upon him. Tableau. A trap is laid for Lancelot, by the king's command, and Sir Lancelot walks right into it. He made it sufficiently uncomfortable for the ambushed witnesses, to wit, Mordred, Agravaine, and twelve knights of lesser rank, for he killed every one of them but Mordred. But of course that couldn't straighten matters between Lancelot and the king, and didn't. Oh, dear, only one thing could result. I see that. War, and the knights of the realm divided into a king's party and a Sir Lancelot party. Yes, that was the way of it. The king sent the queen to the stake, proposing to purify her with fire. Lancelot and his knights rescued her, and in doing it, slew certain good old friends of yours and mine. In fact, some of the best we ever had. To wit, Sir Bellius Leorgulus, Sir Segberides, Sir Grifflet Lefields de Deux, Sir Brandiles, Sir Aglavale. Oh, you're tearing out my heartstrings. Wait, I'm not done yet. Sir Tor, Sir Gouter, Sir Gillimer. The very best man in my subordinate nine. What a handy right fielder he was. Sir Reynolds' three brothers, Sir Damus, Sir Primus, Sir Kay the Stranger. My shortstop! I've seen him catch a daisy cutter in his teeth. Come, I can't stand this. Sir Driant, Sir Lambegus, Sir Hermind, Sir Pertilope, Sir Paramones. And whom do you think? Rush, go on. Sir Gaheris and Sir Gareth, both. Oh, incredible. Their love for Lancelot was indestructible. Well, it was an accident. They were simply onlookers. They were unarmed, and were merely here to witness the Queen's punishment. Sir Lancelot smote down whoever came in the way of his blind fury, and he killed these without noticing who they were. Here is an instantaneous photograph one of our boys got of the battle. It's for sale on every newsstand. There, the figures nearest the Queen are Sir Lancelot with his sword up, and Sir Gareth gasping his latest breath. "'You can catch the agony in the Queen's face through the curling smoke. "'It's a rattling battle picture.' "'Yeah, indeed it is. "'We must take good care of it. "'Its historical value is incalculable. "'Go on.' "'Well, the rest of the tale is just war, pure and simple. "'Lancelot retreated to his town and castle of Joyous Guard "'and gathered there a great following of knights. "'The King, with a great host, went there, "'and there was desperate fighting during several days, "'and, as a result, all the plain around was paid with corpses and cast iron. Then the church patched up a peace between Arthur and Lancelot, and the queen and everybody. Everybody but Sir Gawain. He was bitter about the slain of his brothers, Gareth and Gaheris, and would not be appeased. He notified Lancelot to get him thence, and made swift preparation, and looked to be soon attacked. So Lancelot sailed to his duchy of Galen with his following, and Gawain soon followed with an army and he beguiled Arthur to go with him. Arthur left the kingdom in Sir Mordred's hands until you should return. 
"'Ah, a king's customary wisdom.' "'Yes, Sir Mordred set himself at once to work to make his kingship permanent. "'He was going to marry Guinevere as a first move, "'but she fled and shut herself up in the Tower of London. "'Mordred attacked. "'The Bishop of Canterbury dropped down on him with the interdict. "'The king returned. "'Mordred fought him at Dover, at Canterbury, and again at Barham Down. "'Then there was talk of peace and a composition. "'Terms. "'Mordred to have Cornwall and Kent during Arthur's life, "'and the whole kingdom afterward.' "'Well, upon my word, my dream of a republic to be a dream, and so remain. "'Yes, the two armies lay near Salisbury. "'Gawain's head is at Dover Castle. "'He fell in the fight there. "'Gawain appeared to Arthur in a dream, at least his ghost did, "'and warned him to refrain from conflict for a month. "'Let the delay cost what it might. "'But the battle was precipitated by an accident.' Arthur had given order that if a sword was raised during the consultation over the proposed treaty with Mordred, sound the trumpet and fall on, for he had no confidence in Mordred. Mordred had given a similar order to his people. Well, by and by, an adder bit a knight's heel. The knight forgot all about the order and made a slash at the adder with his sword. Inside of half a minute, those two prodigious hosts came together with a crash. They butchered away all day. "'Then the king, however, we've started something fresh since you left. "'Our paper has.' "'No. What's that?' "'War correspondence.' "'Why, that's good.' "'Yes, the paper was booming right along, "'for the interdict made no impression, got no grip, while the war lasted. "'I had war correspondence with both armies. "'I will finish that battle by reading you what one of the boys says.' "'Then the king looked about him. "'and then he was where all of his host "'and of all his good knights "'were left no more alive but two knights. "'That was Sir Lucian de Butler "'and his brother Sir Bevedere. "'And they were full sore wounded. "'Hezu mercy,' said the king. "'Where are all my noble knights? "'Alas that ever I should see this doleful day. "'For now,' said Arthur, "'I am come to mine end. "'But would to God that I wist "'were there that traitor Sir Mordred "'that hath caused all this mischief.' Then was King Arthur where, where Sir Mordred leaned upon his sword among a great heap of dead men. Now give me my spear, said Arthur unto Sir Lucan, for yonder I have espied a traitor, the traitor that all this woe hath wrought. Sir, let him be, said Sir Lucan, for he is unhappy, and if ye pass this unhappy day, ye shall be right well revenged upon him. Good Lord, remember ye of your knight's dream, and what the spirit of Sir Gawain told you this night. "'yet God of his great goodness hath preserved you hitherto. "'Therefore, for God's sake, my lord, leave off by this. "'For blessed be God ye have won the field, "'for here we be three on live, "'and with Sir Mordred is none on live. "'And if ye leave off now, "'this wicked day of destiny is past. "'Tide me death, betide me life,' said the king. "'Now I see him yonder alone. "'He shall never escape mine hands, "'for to better avail shall I never have him.' "'God speed you well,' said Sir Bevedere. "'Then the king get his spear in both his hands "'and ran toward Sir Mordred, crying, "'Traitor, now is thy death day come.' "'And when Sir Mordred heard Sir Arthur, "'he ran toward him with his sword drawn in his hand. "'And then King Arthur smote Sir Mordred under the shield, "'with a foin of his spear throughout the body more than a fathom. "'And when Sir Mordred felt that he had his death's wound, "'he thrust himself with the might that he had, 
up to the butt of King Arthur's spear. And right so he smote his father Arthur with his sword holding in both his hands, on the side of the head, that the sword pierced the helmet and the brain pan, and therewithal Sir Mordred fell stark dead to the earth, and the noble Arthur fell in a swoon to the earth, and there he swooned oft times. "'That's a good piece of war correspondence, Clarence. "'You're a first-rate newspaper man. "'Well, is the king all right? "'Did he get well?' "'Poor soul, no. He's dead.' "'I was utterly stunned. "'It had not seemed to me that any wound could be mortal to him. "'And the queen, Clarence. "'She's a nun in Almsbury. "'What changes? "'And in such a short while. "'It is inconceivable. "'What next, I wonder?' "'I can tell you what next. "'Well, stake our lives and stand by them. "'What do you mean by that? "'The church is master now. "'The interdict included you with Mordred. "'It is not to be removed while you remain alive. "'The clans are gathering. "'The church has gathered all the knights that are left alive. "'And as soon as you are discovered, "'we shall have business on our hands. "'Stuff! "'With our deadly scientific war material. "'With our hosts of trained... "'Save your breath. We haven't sixty faithful left.' "'What are you saying? Our schools, our colleges, our vast workshops. "'When those nights come, those establishments will empty themselves and go over to the enemy. "'Did you think you had educated the superstition out of those people?' "'I certainly did think it. "'Well, then, you may unthink it. "'They stood every strain easily, until the interdict. "'Since then, they merely put on a bold outside.' At heart they're quaking. Make up your mind to it. When the armies come, the mask will fall. It's hard news. We're lost. They will turn our own science against us. No, they won't. Why? Because I and a handful of the faithful have blocked that game. I'll tell you what I've done, and what moved me to it. Smart as you are, the church was smarter. It was the church that sent you cruising. Through her servants, the doctors. "'Clarence! "'It's the truth. I know it. "'Every officer of your ship was the church's picked servant, "'and so was every man of the crew. "'No. "'It's just as I tell you. "'I did not find out these things at once, "'but I found them out finally. "'Did you send me verbal information by the commander of the ship "'to the effect that upon his return to you, with supplies, "'you were going to leave Cadiz?' "'Cadiz? "'I haven't been to Cadiz at all.' "'Yeah, going to leave Cadiz and cruise in distant seas indefinitely "'for the health of your family. "'Did you send that word?' "'Of course not. I would have written, wouldn't I?' "'Naturally. I was troubled and suspicious. "'When the commander sailed again, I managed to ship a spy with him. "'I've never heard of vessel or spy since. "'I gave myself two weeks to hear from you. "'Then I resolved to send a ship to Cadiz. "'There was a reason why I didn't.' "'And what was that?' "'our navy had suddenly and mysteriously disappeared. "'Also, as suddenly and as mysteriously, "'the railway and telegraph and telephone service ceased. "'The men all deserted. "'Poles were cut down. "'The church laid a ban upon the electric light. "'I had to be up and doing, and straight off. "'Your life was safe. "'Nobody in these kingdoms but Merlin "'would venture to touch such a magician as you "'without ten thousand men in his back. "'I had nothing to think of, but how to put preparations in the best trim against your coming. 
I felt safe myself. Nobody would be anxious to touch a pet of yours. So this is what I did. From our various works, I selected all the men, boys, I mean, whose faithfulness under whatever pressure I could swear to. I called them together secretly and gave them their instructions. There are fifty-two of them, none younger than fourteen and none above seventeen. Why did you select boys? Because all the others were born in an atmosphere of superstition and reared in it. It's in their blood and bones. We imagined we had educated it out of them. They thought so, too. The interdict woke them up like a thunderclap. It revealed them to themselves, and it revealed them to me, too. With boys it was different. Such as have been under our training from seven to ten years have no acquaintance with the church's terrors, and it was among these that I found my fifty-two. As a next move, I paid a private visit to that old cave of Merlin's. Not the small one, the big one. Yes, the one where we secretly established our first great electric plant when I was projecting a miracle. Just so, and as that miracle hadn't become necessary then, I thought it might be a good idea to utilize the plant now. I provisioned the cave for a siege. A good idea, a first-rate idea. I think so. I placed four of my boys there as guard, inside and out of sight. Nobody was to be hurt, while outside, but any attempt to enter, well, we just said let anybody try it. Then I went out into the hills and uncovered and cut the secret wires which connected your bedroom with the wires that go to the dynamite deposits under all our vast factories, mills, workshops, magazines, etc. And about midnight, I and my boys turned out and connected that wire with the cave. And nobody but you and I suspects where the other end of it goes to. We laid it underground, of course, and it was all finished in a couple of hours or so. We shan't have to leave our fortress now when we want to blow up our civilization. It was the right move, and the natural one, military necessity, in the changed condition of things. Well, what changes have come? We expected to be besieged in the palace some time or other. But, however, go on. Next we built a wire fence. A wire fence? Yes, you dropped the hint of it yourself, two or three years ago. Oh, I remember. The time the church tried her strength against us the first time, and presently thought it wise to wait for a hopefuler season. Well, how have you arranged the fence? I start twelve immensely strong wires, naked, not insulated, from a big dynamo in the cave. Dynamo with no brushes except a positive and a negative one. Yes, that's right. The wires go out from the cave and fence in a circle of level ground a hundred yards in diameter. They make twelve independent fences, ten feet apart, that is to say, twelve circles within circles, and their ends come into the cave again. Right, go on. The fences are fastened to heavy oaken posts only three feet apart, and these posts are sunk five feet in the ground. That is good and strong. Yes, the wires have no ground connection outside of the cave. They go out from the positive brush of the dynamo. There's a ground connection through the negative brush. The other ends of the wire return to the cave, and each is grounded independently. No, no, that won't do. Why? It's too expensive. Uses up force for nothing. You don't want any ground connection except the one through the negative brush. The other end of every wire must be brought back into the cave and fastened independently, and without any ground connection. 
"'Now, then, observe the economy of it. "'A cavalry charge hurls itself against the fence. "'You are using no power. "'You are spending no money. "'For there is only one ground connection "'till those horses come against the wire. "'The moment they touch it, "'they form a connection with the negative brush "'through the ground, and they drop dead. "'Don't you see? "'You are using no energy until it's needed. "'Your lightning is there and ready, "'like a load in a gun. "'But it isn't costing you a cent till you touch it off. "'Oh, yes, the single ground connection. "'Of course, I don't know how I overlooked that. "'It's not only cheaper, but it's more effectual than the other way, "'for if wires break or get tangled, no harm is done. "'No, especially if we have a telltale in the cave "'and disconnect the broken wire. "'Well, go on. The Gatlings? "'Yes, that's arranged. "'In the center of the inner circle, "'on a spacious platform six feet high,' I grouped a battery of thirteen Gatling guns and provided plenty of ammunition. That's it, then. They command every approach, and when the church's knights arrive, there's going to be music. The brow of the precipice over the cave. I've got a wire fence there, and a Gatling. They won't drop any rocks down on us. Well, and the glass-cylinder dynamite torpedoes. That's attended to. "'It's the prettiest garden that was ever planted. "'It's a belt forty feet wide "'and goes around the outer fence. "'Distance between it and the fence, one hundred yards. "'Kind of neutral ground that space is. "'There isn't a single square yard of that whole belt, "'but is equipped with a torpedo. "'We laid them on the surface of the ground "'and sprinkled a layer of sand over them. "'It's an innocent-looking garden, "'but you let a man start in to hoe it once, "'and you'll see. "'You tested the torpedoes?' "'Well, I was going to, but—' "'But what? "'When it's immense oversight not to apply a—' "'A test? "'Yes, I know. "'But they're all right. "'I laid a few in the public road beyond our lines, "'and they've been tested.' "'Oh, well, that alters the case. "'Who did it?' "'A church committee.' "'How kind.' "'Yes, they came to command us to make submission. "'You see, they didn't really come to test the torpedoes. "'That was merely an accident.' "'Did the committee make a report?' "'Yes, they made one, and you could have heard it a mile. "'Unanimous?' "'That was the nature of it. "'After that I put up some signs for the protection of future committees, "'and yet we've had no intruders since. "'Clarence, you've done a world of work, and done it perfectly. "'We had plenty of time for it. "'There wasn't any occasion for hurry.' "'We sat silent a while, thinking.' "'Then my mind was made up, and I said, "'Yes, everything is ready. "'Everything is ship-shape. "'No detail is wanting. "'I know what to do now.' "'So do I. "'Sit down and wait.' "'No, sir. "'Rise up and strike.' "'Do you mean it?' "'Yes, indeed. "'The defensive isn't in my line, "'and the offensive is. "'That is, when I hold a fair hand. Two thirds as good a hand as the enemy.' "'Oh, yes. We'll rise up and strike. That's our game.' "'A hundred to one, you're right. When does the performance begin?' "'Now. We'll proclaim the Republic.' "'Well, that will precipitate things, sure enough. "'It'll make them buzz, I tell you. "'England will be a hornet's nest before noon tomorrow "'if the church's hand hasn't lost its cunning. "'And we know it hasn't. "'Now you write, and I'll dictate thus. "'Proclamation.' Be it known unto all, 
whereas the king having died and left no heir, it becomes my duty to continue the executive authority vested in me until a government shall have been created and set in motion. The monarchy has lapsed. It no longer exists. By consequence, all political power has reverted to its original source, the people of the nation. With the monarchy, its several adjuncts died also. Wherefore, there is no longer a nobility, no longer a privileged class, no longer an established church. All men have become exactly equal. They are upon one common level, and religion is free. A republic is hereby proclaimed as being the natural estate of a nation when other authority has ceased. It is the duty of the British people to meet together immediately, and by their votes elect representatives and deliver into their hands the government. I signed it, the boss, and dated it from Merlin's cave. Clarence said, Why, that tells where we are, and invites them to call right away. That's the idea. We strike, by the proclamation. Then it's their innings. Now have the thing set up and printed and posted right off. That is, give the order. Then, if you've got a couple of bicycles handy at the foot of the hill, ho for Merlin's cave. I shall be ready in ten minutes. What a cyclone there's going to be tomorrow when this piece of paper gets to work. It's a pleasant old palace, this is. I wonder if we shall ever again. Ah, but never mind about that. It looks like things are heated up for a war in Camelot. Join us for the last two chapters of A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court next week Sunday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I do have a message for you listeners. For any of those who are currently using Twitter, we just opened a Twitter account. Our address is at 1001podcast. That's at 1001podcast. I'm going to use that account to announce specific episodes and shows that I think our Twitter followers would like to know about. If you could go to at 1001podcast and follow us, we would appreciate that very, very much. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. We'll return next Sunday night at 5 p.m. Eastern Time with a dramatic conclusion of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. See you then.